Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Settler Control Tour. Hi, Gary. Hi, Guy. So we're in uh, Edinburgh where you did a show last night that went really well at the Usher Hall. Yep, we did a show last night and we're leaving very soon to go to Manchester. So we're somehow managing to squeeze in Neil Finn because it's such a brilliant opportunity to speak to such a wonderful... Oh. Talent. I mean, I've been wanting to get this guy on for a while. You know, I mean, all the way from sort of split ends, crowded house, and then stuff he does with Tim, his brother, and of course, f- becoming lead singer with Fleetwood Mac. But he is one of the world's greatest songwriters, without a shadow of a doubt. He is, absolutely. There's a quote from Paul McCartney, isn't there, where Paul McCartney basically made out he thinks he's a better songwriter than him. Really? He, really? That, that yeah. would put a lot of pressure on one, wouldn't it? <laughs> It would, wouldn't it? It's very late. He's apparently just come in from a dinner party. It's very early here in Edinburgh. We've just had the haggis breakfast. He's just had a few reds at a dinner party. Let's get him on. Welcome to Rock on Tears. Okay, guys, I'm ready. That's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found... Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. So great to talk to two guys that have done this. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters Podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Hey. Oh, thank you so much for talking to us so late at it's night. Right. Well, as long as you're there and I'm here, it's all good. Where in New Zealand are you, Neil? I'm in Piha Beach, which is just... 45 minutes west of Auckland. Very nice. So you, you yeah. know we're on tour at the moment, so we're trying to make this work from, a ho- from our hotel. We're, we're currently in Edinburgh. Yeah. We, we play with... Play on tour with, with, with Nick who? Nick Mason. Oh, OK. Nick Mason, Pink Floyd. Uh, so we do, right. we're part of the Nick Mason Sourceful of Secrets uh, band. Oh, and, excellent. Uh, 
Great. Got a big tour coming up, so this is just only at the beginning. Where are you playing? What venue? Usher Hall, which you've probably played. I have done the Usher Hall a couple of times, I think, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lovely room. It all seems like a dream. It's a lovely room. It seems like a dream from here now, because we're going to be there in a month. I'm still going, really? I don't think, surely that's not going to happen. I know, well, because you guys have only just opened, haven't you? We've actually had the same tour on sale for the last three years, and we've just kept moving it on by a year, so... This tour yeah, that we're doing year. in um, you know, June is basically the same tour, yeah. And it's all been sold for two years as well. So we're actually incredibly grateful and kind of surprised that people have held on to their tickets for so long. It's fantastic. Yeah, we're exactly the same. We're exactly the same. This is a tour that was sold nearly three years ago. And there yeah. are a few empty seats here and there, and, you want, and, and no one has reclaimed those people tickets. People have forgotten. And... They've forgotten. Well, I think there's, there's a slightly more macabre... <laughs> few one could take as well Well, they might have covid or (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. well never made it (laughs) it doesn't pay to i mean we are doing our first exactly our first four shows are at the roundhouse in london and if you were to you know cast your mind back two years because i've been wanting to play that room for a long time having done it in 1970 i think it was actually 77 with split ends and it was one of the my favorite gigs of all time when that venue had just opened and so I kept hassling the agents to go, I want to play the roundhouse, I want to play the roundhouse, and it hasn't happened until now. Well, let's not, let's not tempt fate by even no, talking no, no. about we it. Just, yeah. we just oh, no, did... Neil, three years ago yesterday, we recorded our live album at the roundhouse. Well, there we go. Yeah. And it's a great venue, right? It's fantastic. It's fantastic. And it's... It, uh, it was great for us because it was opened originally by Pink Floyd in 1966. There we go. But yeah, no, it's the best. You'll love it. I have huge memories of it that date back to my first experience of playing shows in the uk so yeah um, it, it feels like a, a coming home but really yeah well we'll, we'll go we'll go back to split ends in a minute but this is interesting for you because you, you, you're, you're such a a family guy or you know touring with your brother and now you're on tour with your sons right i mean i guess it yeah i guess they're coming with you yeah and you made this you got a new crowded house album dreamers are waiting with your boys yeah. How does that feel for you? Do you take on the role of dad when you're away or, or is there an equanimity now? <laughs> well, I feel incredibly blessed to be able to be in a band with my sons, as I did with my brother. And, you know, I mean, at the time when I joined Split Ends back in 1977, there would have been quite a few people in the small but, you know, passionate group of people who were supporting the band who would have thought... That's nepotism, pure nepotism. Look at it. He can't even play the guitar. And I couldn't really. It was true. And the other members of the band were competing to be on the other side of stage from me because I was, you know, a musical dilemma, really. But but I got good quite fast in that situation. So, But I, I don't compare that to this situation. But what is absolutely glorious to me is that I'm in a band with four other people who I consider to be you know, some of my favourite musicians on the planet, and that includes my son Liam on guitar and vocals and my son Elroy on drums. So, And people will see for themselves, hear for themselves, that this lineup is a really hot band. And so far from being just a good idea on paper and a nice way to spend time with your family, it's actually a really beautiful musical development for me, and I feel the band has got new life. There's new, you know, songwriting chops in the band and arrangement ideas because these guys have already put quite a few miles on the board and uh, 
they bring a lot to the to the thing so yeah it's a it's a fantastic convergence of a good idea for keeping a family together and also a good idea for keeping a band together how is it writing with one of your sons do you remember that first time Liam my um, older son and I wrote an album together before this uh, which is called Light Sleeper and it was the first time we'd actually done we'd done lots of stuff together live and in various contexts but we never actually sat down and figured out how to write songs and it's actually for me anyway it's a rare convergence and I've written songs for my brother and sat in a room and and we've had you know to and fro banter musical banter that's been really um, exciting and dynamic but I haven't really had that experience many people I'm not like a a Nashville kind of guy you know I'm not like a guy who walks into a room and can bash around ideas I have a way of working on my own that is um, and I enjoy and it's worked for me so it, to be able to write songs with Liam was um, a really beautiful development. And, uh, you know, there was a few days where we would have that thousand yard stare at each other and like, oh my God, this is too hard. There's too much water under the bridge. It's too much family uh, shit going on. Uh, but that happens when any musical relationship. I think if it was easy, we'd all be doing it every day and writing, you know, huge universal anthems every day but it's not easy is it you know <laughs> except when it is easy you know like it's every now and again it is easy and it's because you put the hours in i think but do you have very different hats that you put on for when you're writing on on your own or when you're working with someone or is it just whatever happens in the room well i mean i'm always and full of self-doubt and you know and when i'm on my own there's two or three days go by and i think there's not a musical bone in my body and i've said that to my wife quite a few times <laughs> when i come in from a day in the studio i say oh, it's not a musical bone left in my body and um but somehow i also now don't have that moment of panic where i think oh that's it for me i'm never going to write another song again i just sort of figure that it'll you know it'll roll out at some point and then you have just a couple of fluky moments where a f- bit of phrasing will click into gear or a line will pop into your head or you know you'll change one chord and it suddenly becomes something you know banal becomes something inspired and the same thing happens Mm. with with when you're sitting in a room with somebody you just got to trust the process and you know trust that the person you're with has got something uh, essential that they need to get out you know and if you just if you provide a a a nice uh, environment for that to happen it will happen i mean lyrics obviously I find that's the hardest thing to write with someone else. Oh, you know, yeah. I, I, gotcha, yeah. I think sitting down, writing music together can be easy, but it's deciding who's going to be honest in this situation or if this is a tale you're both going to combine together. Was that, is that harder with your son to write about love, to write about fantasy? Oh, God, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you were to be deliberate about it and to be conscious about it, yeah, it would be incredibly... Uh, difficult. You could use it as a way to communicate with each other, though, can't you? you kind of quite sorry to therapy. say things that you don't necessarily want to say out loud. Yeah. Yeah. No, the therapy. I think it's better to leave it in the abstract. I think the therapy when it gets too specific. But I mean, it, and I think my sons maybe have a similar approach to me uh, with the lyric writing. And I'm. I don't know how it works for anybody else out there, but I have had quite a few. Uh, seriously good writers say to me oh the lyrics are the hard part so I think it it unites us those of us who are not Bob Dylan it unites us to have you know that be the struggle and I think it's worthy of a struggle because even if your lyrics end up being of a pop idiom and kind of ones that just going to get people 
feeling good or or thinking good thoughts without being concentrating too much on the narrative it's really important that they're up there you know they're worthy and yeah as time goes on they become more and more important to get right so yeah but what my both my sons and I our approach is to let the subconscious deliver as much as possible before the conscious mind has had a chance to criticize so Although sometimes, Neil, the, the other way around, sometimes you can begin writing lyrics very consciously, self-consciously, and then suddenly from somewhere you weren't expecting comes something that just excites you so much and you would never have thought of that as the first line, you know. What's that like? <laughs> no, I don't know. No, I, you know, that, I'm sure that's true and I probably have had a couple of moments where that's been true, but mostly for me it's I get a piece of music that gets me going, you know, like something that I get involved in. And it's I make a series of demos when I'm writing, and um, it was the same on a four-track cassette recorder as it is now on Pro Tools, but I get more choices now on Pro Tools. But I just start humming away and singing sounds and phrases pop out, and then you get something that uh, you can, you know, hang your idea around, and you go, okay, well, that's a good line. And so now that becomes the theme of the song. And then I don't really want to think about it too much. I kind of pop a few things out that feel like they're in the same, inhabiting the same space, maybe the same character singing them, and um, keep going on that front. I try and keep it as subconscious as I can for as long as I can. It's a puzzle, though, and it's some, you know, like you're aware that there's an element of skullduggery and it could all go horribly wrong at some point, but it has served me well um, over the years. And, and then at the last phase for me is like, okay, I've got these lines and they don't really make sense, but actually now I'm looking at it and I'm going, okay, well, that line seems to suggest this idea and I was reading something today that connected with that, so I'm going to make... That's what the song's about. So that's the last yeah. thing I do is, is figure out what the song's about, generally. There's a skill that you've got, and I don't know what it is that, that allows you to, to keep this, but you can write love songs that are pop songs, that are commercial, but a bit like Nick Lowe, you always manage to retain an indie feel, a feel that still has a line of credibility. It never gets into the schmaltz and it never gets, it never feels wasted. Um, you know, that's the genius for me. Well, it's a very kind thought. Um, I think there's a little bit of vulnerability that is... Mm, that's uh, the word. What you're, yeah, what yeah. you're getting at, really, and it, in a way it's a... It's a certain inadequacy that I can't actually bring myself to a right out-and-out pop song, whether through inability or just a kind of a, there's a line you can't cross that you have to keep it within your own emotional, yeah, vulnerability is the word, I think. And often that means that the songs aren't terribly commercial. You know, I've had a few really good successes over the years, but... Oh yeah. The matter is, you know, like I've, <laughs> you I've could say that I've had a lot of, a lot of songs that haven't, that I regard with as much affection as the ones that became successful, that weren't connecting with people at all. So, that speaks to me of the idea that in order to write, you have to really, um, you know, be prepared to satisfy yourself and and connect yourself with the most vulnerable part of yourself, and then it either works and other people get that and they empathise with that, or it just goes unnoticed and that's okay you know there's so many things competing for people's attention 
out there, you can't assume that what seems essential or incredibly important to you is going to be essential or incredibly important to anybody mm. else. So, but I keep going because I'm compelled and I'm, I find it more fascinating than I ever did. And, you know, but there's no formula to it and I, can't, I haven't figured it out. So, but, you know, I, I appreciate your kind thoughts. I really do. <laughs> well, so I don't want to get too technical because there's a wonderful thing with your writing, which is through the music, which is that you come up with chords that just support work absolutely beautifully under the melody and heighten that the way that McCartney does rather than chords that sound nice together. Do you know what I mean? It's not about the track on its own. It's like the melody and the music come together and sit. So I'm just wondering if you're hearing a whole thing in your head when you write, it's, it's not like sort of you come up with a couple of chords and that inspires a melody. Well, I, I'm absolutely fascinated with chords and melodies and, um, yeah. and I've learnt how to support that with lyrics. It wasn't part of my natural game when I was younger and to be honest when I listened to music when I was a teenager and you know my first music I connected with I never thought for a moment about what the singers were really telling me I, I thought about what the words made me feel and uh, it's lines that opened up doors for me to my own thoughts so you know and it was only later that I became really appreciative of people who were spinning narratives together so, you know, for me, it's like words that they have to have kind of alchemy. They have to be something about them makes you feel. And, and I need to feel that when I'm writing them. I have to have a moment mm. where I'm, you know, writing it and I'm, I'm going, oh, man, this is like a, some echo of some experience I've had or some feeling I've had. And I'm, and I'm really, I'm experiencing it again. And so you get it down and you do your demo and you go, well, other people are going to feel the same way. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But the lyrics and the music have to feel to me part of yeah, some alchemy, some uh, experience. Neil, Johnny Marr is a good friend of both of ours. He's been on the show and I texted Johnny yesterday to say you were coming on. Yeah. And he said, uh, Neil is amazing, as good as it gets. A friend of ours once said, when Neil writes a new song, you go, oh, of course the melody is going to go there. It's just that he's the only one who could do it. He said, when, you wrote, when he wrote together with you, he said, you do this cool thing of, called pushing through the wall and you've got some cool theory about embracing the mystery. He's the gold standard, he said of you. What's he talking about? Well, he, he understands the mystery as much as anybody, so I don't know. Um, it's a great compliment to hear Johnny say that about... I mean, we already had one... In fact, we were at Pihar, where I am now, when we had a, a really enjoyable afternoon or two writing and playing guitars and hanging out. Johnny's writing and his, the way he puts chords together and melodies together is a perfect example of what exactly what he's talking about, really. It's the, the mystery of... I don't doubt that he would be able to explain it any more than I can. Pushing through the wall, mm. though, is that... What is that pushing through the wall thing? Depends on, yeah, depends on how compelled you are, I think. And if you were to give up every time you felt that internal voice going, oh, this is yeah. fucking rubbish. And maybe you wrote a couple of good things, and but now you should just go and hang out with family. If you push yourself through that wall and embrace the mystery, then something good will come of it. And I really, I recognize that, but I also can't really explain it or, but I, you know, I think Johnny and I had connected at a point in his life where 
he was in between a lot of very powerful things and Mm-mm. not necessarily understanding where he was at in his musical life and I was in exactly the same place coming from a couple of different bands and I think we recognised in each other a kind of a, a compulsion to push push through that wall, you know. I get it, so I get it. What he says relates. I saw him playing with you at the Shepherd's Bush Empire. In fact, he introduced me to you briefly oh, yeah. backstage yeah, yeah. years ago. And you did a version of There is a Light That Never Goes Out. Yeah. Which to me is now the definitive version. I don't ever want to hear anyone else singing it. Oh, that's very kind. I, I did enjoy, um, we did a Seven Wheels Collide, what was that's called, right, yeah. with... Um, Johnny and I when after I just met him and Ed O'Brien and I were sitting at Piha. It's just been a pivotal place actually, obviously. He was having a holiday many years ago now, I think they'd just done Kid A, and we were talking about how many times you meet musicians and you're on the road or in hotels or in airports and often the conversation when you're enthusiastic about each other's music ends with, oh man, it'd be great to do something together one day, you know, especially people in bands who only ever get to play with their band. You know, they're all... That was my line for the end of this podcast, Neil. You've just ruined it for me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, can you... Let's do something together one day, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, we said that, Ed and I, and I said, oh, we, like, if we did something here, maybe we should do these concerts here just for fun. And who would you invite? And we both... The first person that came up was Johnny, because I just met him at the Albert Hall about you know six months earlier. I don't know Linda McCartney, uh, a benefit yes. for her, and um, Johnny was, was that, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was, um, and we, you know, brilliant. just hit it off nicely. But and I got his number, and I went, oh yeah, okay, well maybe I should just call him and see. You know, I was sort of going, well, what do you think? You know, maybe you should think about it. And he was going, yeah, no man, it sounds great. I'm there, and so um, he was immediately signed on and it was the same thing with Ed Vedder who maybe was in between a little bit as well but I rang him up and I was going oh yeah man we had this mad idea you know to come down and do some shows in New Zealand and he went yeah okay cool I'm, I'm there it's great and uh, it was just one of those weird moments where everybody's lives converged and um, great friendships were formed and yeah wonderful I remember seeing the documentary, but I couldn't find it recently. I've been looking to see if I could see it again, but uh, I remember seeing it when it came out. And mm. They're very difficult, those situations, because, you know, you've got people who, you know, are used to writing in teams, who are suddenly writing with you. And, you know, Johnny and Ed are quite similar are guitarists as well. They both do their arpeggiating thing. But I think what came out was there was a sense of everyone trying to find honesty through their writing and not worrying about, oh, I've just got to fit into a particular genre and make something commercial or make something that all our fans understand. Well, it was actually just a really intense and quite stressful situation for everyone to suddenly find themselves. And we went to a, an old barn on the west coast of New Zealand, just up the road from here, and Ed and Phil arrived. And having never played with anyone else except for Radiohead, Johnny came in the midst of... I'm not sure what point that was at. He'd, he'd been played with the Pretenders and he was... I think it was the Healers, just before the Healers. All right. And... Electronic, just post-electronic Yeah, stuff. Yeah, just post-electronic. Yeah. yeah, I think that was around the yeah. period. Eddie, I'm not sure what was happening with at what point they were at. but um, And, you know, Lisa Germano and friends. And it was... We all arrived in this barn on the West Coast and we had three days to get ready. And what appeared like a really good idea on paper suddenly became this most terrifying prospect... And we're all going, oh my God, we've got five fucking shows and we've got to learn 20 songs. 
and we've never played with anybody else in our lives. So there was actually quite a degree of fear and trepidation going into the whole thing. But there's something absolutely wonderful about putting that kind of pressure on people who are really good, substantial, fantastic musicians, because they rise to it, you know, and by the time we got round to the first night in this beautiful old St. James Theatre, we did five in a row, we were sailing on some kind of willfulness and uh, and we played really well and it was, you know, immediately pretty good. I got even better as the nights went on, but yeah, we're all stepping outside of, you know, like it's almost a cliche to say we were outside our comfort zones. We were well outside our comfort zones, but musically a wonderful experience for everybody and I think for in some ways for Phil and Ed particularly had only ever had the experience of being in Radiohead they were you know suddenly incredibly plunged into liberated. self-doubt liberated <laughs> going oh, liberated this is... from Tom <laughs> well they were liberated <laughs> once we got through the first night they were liberated yeah because we knew we were actually a pretty good band and you know like there's a live TV special of it and it really it, it comes across pretty good I, I'm actually really proud of what we all managed to do but it was really mad as well so yeah a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot may be your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. Should we go back? Yeah, I think we should go, back. Time to go back. Well, you know... Well, it's always interesting to know the very, very start, because it's the... I mean, it was the music in the house. You were always a very keen performer as a little kid, weren't you? Didn't they call you the ant or something? I was the ant. Everyone in Split Ends <laughs> had an animal. It was the humanal theory, and 
Um, we all resemble the, some animal. So I'm sorry, the, the, the humanal theory. The humanal is theory is, um, yeah. is that everybody resembles some animal. And I was the ant, probably owing to the nervous energy that I had, especially as a youngster in the context of split ends. Noel Crombie, who some may remember as the kind of visual representation of split mm-hmm. ends from way back, those that do remember split ends, and who designed all the costumes and was responsible for the haircuts, was the goat. Nigel Griggs, who was our bass player, was the turtle. Tim was the bull, bull in a china shop. And Eddie was the horse, Eddie Rayner, the keyboard player, full of pride and cantering around like he owned the place, you know. So yeah, we had the humanal theory. I'm looking at you and I'm trying to figure out what animals you represent. Um, I'd say, I'd say, no, I'd say a dog and possibly a a bird looking at you. Who's the bird? Who's the dog? No, you, you are the bird, Gary. Oh, thank Um, you. But yeah. And uh, I'm the dog. Well, but that's not a bad thing, you know, guy, you can't (laughs) complain about a dog. It's the most loved animals on earth, really. Well, yeah, they do express unconditional love. Yeah, and together we do the bird dog, right? We do the bird dog, right? (laughs) (laughs) But listen, I think we're fascinated by your relationship with with Tim. He's quite a few years older than you, right? And, and, you know, this is a kid who's growing up and you're you're still young and you've he's he's got a band already you know and um and you're not in the band i remember that situation in my own band when my mum said you've got to put martin in your band you know because he's your brother and i had to teach him bass and he was going out on 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 tours with even roxy music i mean were you feeling that you had to jump on that train otherwise it was going to go and leave you oh no i was just absolutely bewitched and fascinated with what was happening with my brother because he went to university and I was 14. That was the early 70s in New Zealand. And he was hanging out with art students and they were dressing in really odd clothes and, um, you know, talking about really unusual music and bringing home, he was bringing home records to me to listen to that were uh, Roxy Music amongst them, actually. Bowie Records, Roxy Music, uh, Led Zeppelin, all this stuff that was... I was experiencing it for the first time through him. And he was in a band, he was writing songs with Phil Judd, who was the early, that was the songwriting partner. Yeah. one of those divine partnerships that only come around every now and again. And they were just writing incredible songs that were really different for the time. Like every other band in New Zealand appeared to me at the time were, you know, like status quo, you know, bell-bottomed blues bands. And they were making really strange sort of, I guess it was art music yeah. at the time. And it was just completely, you know, fascinating for me. I was like just a young guy who was getting into music. So I was to be asked to join the band in 1977 and I was only 19. It was way before I expected, but I'd always in my mind, I suppose, thought, well, hell, I've got to be in that. You know, I've got to get in that at some point or do something that's equally as fascinating as that and so when I got the call it was you know earlier than expected because Phil Judd had left the band and if I had been older I probably would have double guessed myself and thought oh well that's a pretty difficult job to replace the founder member who was the one of the artistic founders of the band but you know when you're 18 19 you don't, you don't think about that shit so you just yeah and I was suddenly on a plane to London from New Zealand you can't imagine what romance there was in that whole idea to be 
suddenly um, in London, when everything we grew up with was just at a distance of a half a world away, you know, and it wasn't, there was no social media. So everything we got was like an enemy three months after the fact, or, you know, like um, a little bit of TV, you'd see the, uh, just before I left, I remember seeing the Sex Pistols on TV uh, the week I left, actually, it was 1977. So I was heading to London just as punk was about to find full flower and, and we arrived and, you know, it was Thatcher's Britain and it was, but absolutely fast. I went straight to Catford from the airport. <laughs> we, were, we had a little bedsit in Catford and we were rehearsing at what now is John Henry's, I think. I can't remember what it was called then. It was... Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. was it Easy Hire or something? Easy, it, was, it was Easy Hire. That's exactly what it was. Right. And I got yeah. there, and me and Nigel Griggs, who was the new bass player in the band, were the only ones there, and we hadn't met each other. And so there was no band. They were all down the road at some cafe somewhere. So he's going, oh, yeah, Nigel, how you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm Neil. I'm the new guitar player. And he said, oh, I'm N- Nigel. And we're sitting in this rehearsal room for like half an hour before everyone shows up. So, yeah. But it was amazing. You know, what an amazing thing for an 18-year-old boy from the the colonies you know i did the same thing in reverse i got on a plane to sydney when i was 19 to really? join an australian band holy yeah. shit but i remember split ends at that time and i'm yeah. being amazed that you were from music because you were so ahead of the curve i mean you saw these guys with your kind of very new wavy roxy type look and thinking well they're clearly from new york or something you know well so, we were sort of because you were strangely so cutting edge. ahead of our time and also outside of the time as well we had no understanding yeah. of the the sociology of music and fashion and culture and you know London you arrive in London and that was a very particular pivotal point for music where it everything just shifted you know the paradigm shifted yeah, um, a, yeah. and it, very quickly because actually by 1980 or 1981 it all shifted again and it was you know it was everything was up for grabs but at that point it was almost I think the first gigs I remember doing and the first gigs that ends did in London were being frequented by all the same people who were in, like Susie Sue was up there looking at Noel Crombie and staring at him the whole night, you know, because <laughs> he was actually worth staring at because he was, he'd do nothing for 20 minutes and then all of a sudden he'd do a little dance move and it would be fucking fantastic, you know. <laughs> but uh, so there was a point where before the lines got drawn, we were of great interest to what was happening at the time and we were far too sophisticated for our own good but we had no conception of it we didn't really understand some like deaf school would be the nearest thing deaf school yeah they were similarly cast adrift i think by at that time yeah there may have even been a definitive article in melody maker or something that said these guys are not punk and and therefore (laughs) you should not support them yeah, but in a way, yeah, you would have been. Isn't you, it, no? you were well early because, in a way, you know, you would have been better off coming in, in the generation that I appeared in. You know, with this sort of more new romantic electronic stuff well, and Klaus Nomi and people like that. We might have but, been. But yeah. Listen, what I'm interested in is your your relationship with your brother. I mean, you're brought into the band as guitarist and singer, but not as a songwriter. You know, and Tim's doing all of pretty much a lot of the songs. Gradually, you start to pop your head up as a songwriter, was there a sense of, were you intimidated in doing that? Did, or did Tim nurture you in doing that? Suddenly you're writing, in, when, by the time you get the True Colours, you're, you're writing the hits. There was never any discouragement from the beginning. It wasn't, I certainly wasn't summoned 
to be a writer <laughs> into the band. It was kind of like they had lost a pivotal member of the band and the bass player who had also been there from the front. And I think the idea was that I understood the ethic and the aesthetic of Split End, so therefore any shortcomings I had as a musician were made up for the fact they knew I could sing and, you know, that I would get it. I would be able to, you know, meld seamlessly into what they had created. I think that there was always a an awareness that maybe there was some songwriting in me that might bear fruit at some point. And actually, fairly early on, we had a fairly grim year, 1978. We lost management and we lost record company. And, you know, just one of those years that bands sometimes have that are pivotal where the world suddenly loses interest in you, but you have to dig deep and actually figure out whether you really believe it or not. And that year we holed up in our various houses and I was living in Chorley Wood with Noel Crombie and uh, we were just kind of really living on subsistence level. I think we were on the dole and we were kind of just sitting around taking acid and making songs and I wrote a whole bunch of songs that year which became part of like an obscure Crowded House, I mean Split Ends record, Frenzy and then by the time we got through that I was putting songs in that were being taken seriously by the out band and we converged with the point where the band felt like doing pop songs. We kind of got sick of being described as, you know, the guys that looked really weird and had really extensively obscure 10-minute songs and we wanted to be a pop band. And, you know, influenced by the times, I guess, you know, get to the point, yeah. get to the chorus. And the songs I was writing were more like that, so they just fitted the the new mold. I got you one step ahead all those kind of things. Yeah, I got you was it was incredible. Was a and it's really hard to see where you came from. It's so unusual in its structuring the verse. It's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I mean I we were sitting in Sydney writing songs together Tim and I in Rose Bay at a point where we'd had a couple of little we'd gone back to Australia from England and things had started to improve a little bit. We had live good live shows and our crowds were building a bit and we just sat around. We knew we had True Colours coming up. We had David Tickle, who was our producer for True Colours, um, mm-hmm. who'd just come off the back of working with Blondie and The Knack and all. he'd done all these Mike Chapman records. And we had actually had wanted to work with him a little bit earlier, but Mushroom had gone, oh, we don't know who he is. We can, you can't do that. You know, one of those uh, mishaps. It took a little while, but he was the perfect guy for us at the time. And I Got You came about because Tim and I were swapping titles he was in his room and I was in my room and he, he gave me the title I Got You, I don't know. Amongst five or six others, it wasn't one that particularly stuck out, but I found myself singing this verse, which I really thought was really strong. And the chorus at the time, I thought, well, it has to be something like that, but it's not. I, I can't obviously do that because it's too corny. And then we got with the band and the band played it, but suddenly sounded really not corny, but just really fucking good. And... But it reminded me, and it still reminds me, that sometimes when you think you're crossing into some, you know, forbidden territory of it being, oh, that's just too basic, that's too simple or too corny, that you're actually doing yourself a favour, you know. Yeah, there was a fashion at the time, though, for making those sort of slightly corny records, if you like. I mean, people like, you know, Tom Petty and, and um, Squeeze or, or Elvis Costello and, and mm. I mentioned Nick Lowe. That's a style of music that has a little bit of tongue-in-cheek cheekiness to it. Yeah. 
Well, I think humour is a great asset for pop music, even if it's yeah. buried, tucked underneath, you know, like just the element of humour or pizzazz or, you know, flash or it's entertainment. And, and I think there's nothing more boring than earnestness in pop music. So, you know, whatever, however you find a way to get your humour out there, it doesn't have to be overt. You yeah. don't have to be cracking jokes, but just just give it a bit of, you know, pizzazz. Yeah. And how was your relationship with Tim through this? Did you have sort of, you know, the classic rock and roll? Well, Gary, unfortunately, is a terrible model for this because him and Martin have always loved each other. But um, did you have the classic sort of rock and roll sibling? No, we, we, get on, we get on well, you know, like it's, it's when you work with your brother, and I don't know how this works for you, Gary, but, um, you know, we've had our moments, but nothing on the scale of, you know, the kinks or you know other brotherly relation, fraternal relationships uh there's been some disastrous ones out there i think we've done pretty well we've always managed to keep a we can sit together at christmas and have a good laugh you know we work together for a while and it works really well for a while and that that creates some stress and then it's really good when we step away from it and we work separately as well and i think that's been a consistent thing for us that's been that's you know, meant that we can come together we've got a couple of songs we've been working on recently which will appear in some form in the next little while and and they've got that really nice feeling of having come back to something familiar and and good you know i don't want to jump around too much because it, it was noticeable when he came into crowded house there was a harder edge came into the songs it seemed i can't say uh, analyze it in any concrete terms yeah, like yeah. that but yeah but it was a good it was a good oh, no, it was fantastic i'm not saying it's, it's yeah yeah. I actually worked on an album with Tim in lockdown. His oh, right. album with Phil Manzanera. Oh, yeah. right. So. What were you doing on that one? I was playing bass on it. Oh, nice one. Just on a few songs. Yeah, great. It's a good record. I like it. I wasn't aware. He doesn't tell me about what he's doing, and then all of a sudden I read about huh. it in the, in the paper somewhere, and I go, oh, shit, he did a record with Phil. I didn't know <laughs> that. So I did actually listen to it quite late, but he's notorious in my world for not telling me what he's doing. Well, it's, it's a, you have a funny relationship because... because <laughs> That's fabulous, though, isn't it? Yeah. You're hugely yeah, close. Maybe. You're hugely close. You can write together, but there doesn't seem to be any um, codependency at all. I mean, he's not on the new Crowded House album, and yet you're still working together, and that obviously was, was a choice. And obviously, at this point, we're up to, in your story, and we don't want to keep you all night, obviously, because I know it's very late there, uh, Neil, yeah. but, um, yeah. you know, Tim leaves, and you're left in split ends as the sort of front man. What was his reason for leaving and, and you staying? Well, Tim had an experience of being a solo artist at a certain point with Split Ends where it felt incredibly liberating and, and he also fell in love with a very um, you know glamorous and, and fantastic actress at the time and I think he just saw his, oh, life, yes, of course. his life expanding in a way that being in Split Ends couldn't quite um, match. And, and, and it, you know, he'd been like, he'd lived split ends since he was 19, 20 years old. So he was like, you know, not many bands can last more than 10 years with the obvious exception of some rare people like Fleetwood Mac who have somehow managed to last the distance for 50 years now almost. And I don't know how that worked. Well, I should know, but I don't yeah. really. And, well, yeah, um, you're part of that story. Well, yeah, I, I, you know, <laughs> it seems like a dream really now. But um, yeah, but how yeah. they've managed to do that, I can't fathom because it's really a, being in a band is a 
you know, and I'm sure you know, well, you understand the, how that is, but it's a very intense relationship. Oh, fuck it. Let's talk about it now, because, Neil, this is, it was so brilliant to yeah. see that Fleetwood Mac show and see you fronting it. You know, obviously, you, you know, you, get, you got a chance to do one of your own songs as well. We've had um, Mick on the show, and we've had Mike on the show as well. Mike, Mike Campbell. Mike Campbell. Yeah. I mean, what was extraordinary is it took two of you to replace Lindsay, really, didn't it? I mean... Because Mike on guitar and you on vocals. Well, I think it was a smart move on their part and made perfect sense to me too, to not put one person in the role of seemingly replacing, you know, a, a pivotal part of the Fleetwood Mac story. So, yeah, that was part of what made sense in the whole preamble of uh, working out whether it was a good idea or not. The offer was obviously immensely flattering and. And lovely, Who thought of it? Was unexpected. It yes. How did it come about? Did you know them? We'd got to know Mick pretty well. He we'd been hanging out a little bit, and he came down and played some drums on some tracks that Liam and I were working on. So, yeah. So there was a little friendship had developed there anyway. But yeah, it was a wholly unexpected thing to get a call from Mick as I was about to go to a sound check for a gig I was doing, and. And he has a very roundabout way of explaining anything. So it took him about 20 minutes to get round to actually saying, do you want to come <laughs> and have a play with Fleetwood Mac? But I kind of knew straight away what he was getting at, but just, yeah, he couldn't bring himself to actually say it. So, And then I had to say, look, Mick, that's an incredible invitation, and but I've just got to go to Soundcheck, so I'll have to ring you back tomorrow. So, <laughs> so you know, it was a genuine uh, thing, but it was also good to have, because as much as it was a incredible thing to happen you know when you think you've you know what your life is and your musical life is and you go well I'm pretty happy with what things how it's worked out so far but to have that come along was a just a wholly unexpected magical thing but I wasn't entirely sure it was right you know like I thought well this could be just a really bad idea and it was my my son Liam and my wife Sharon the next day when I talked about it with them after I'd done my gig and before I'd called Mick back, that went, what, you're not going to go and sit in a room with Fleetwood Mac and sing with Stevie and Christine just because you think it might be a, you know, a bad idea. <laughs> and he go, well, actually, no, you're absolutely right, of course. You know, because that's all he, he was saying anyway, come over and have a play and see what it feels like, which is all it ever is with a band, right? You know, right when you're mm-hmm. back in the day and you're your mum's front room and you go, oh, so I hear so-and-so is a really good guitar player, let's get him over and see how it feels, you know. So it's still like that with Fleetwood Mac. You have to stand in a room and you have to sing with people and make sure it feels okay. And that's what we did. How nervous were you? Did you feel that, that, was, uh, that you were singing these songs that were so ingrained in people's minds that this new voice might be not the one they want to hear? I wasn't that nervous. I mean, I kind of felt like I was... I'm pretty happy with what was happening in my own musical life at that time, and I thought, have a crack and see how it feels, because yeah. it, you know, it had to feel right to me as well. I, I, and they walked in. It was a really weird situation the first day because the room we were playing in just sounded terrible. You know, like it was one of those awful, dry, horrible rehearsal rooms. And the first thing that they wanted to do was to sing together, which was great. I understood. We gathered. Christine and Stevie and me around a little area in the band are playing, but there was no 
ambience in the room whatsoever. And it still sounded pretty good, but it was just like not a forgiving environment. The next day we came in early, it was Mick's idea, and he's a smart guy, and that's the reason the band has lasted as long as it has, because he he knows both instinctively and emotionally and intellectually what it takes to keep a band together. And he's fought hard and long to do that. So, you know, I give him incredible credit. He said, let's go in an hour early before the girls get here and get ourselves settled in, get the sound right, get the monitors working. And so we did. And we we were all playing staff and Mike was there and it was sounding good. And I was got my guitar sound, I got the monitors working. And so the next day they came in we were singing as a band does through the monitors and it was all set up right and it just sounded fantastic yeah and the voices sounded good together and i thought the blend is good and i didn't know whether they you know i could tell it was a good rehearsal but i didn't know they went out to dinner together that night and mick was really late back i was staying with mick at the time he was really late like midnight one o'clock before he came back and you know he was he'd had a few and <laughs> and he insisted on going upstairs and getting changed before he came down to tell me what the, what the band called. Oh God, yeah. eek it out! Yeah, fuck yeah! He's like that's some into his yeah. smoking and he, jacket. And then he came down and said, "Yeah, no, everybody, it's unanimous. Everyone, John, straight away. You know, everyone. I've never been in that situation before in my life where I've actually passed the audition, and I've got to say it was a lovely feeling." What what way round was it? Was it like, let's try it out with you, and then if and if it works, go and do something, or was it there's something going to happen? No, no, it was. No, to make we it had work. two days yeah. rehearsal. They had dinner, and I got the job basically. So you know, it might have already been, you know, right. ticked off two months earlier or something. So, and then Mick went for a swim. You know, absolutely. Did you found your wife smashed, <laughs> and I had to go down and make sure he didn't drown. So that was my first task in the. <laughs> In the band, yeah. Did you go and get changed before you went to make sure he? No, didn't I, he drown. wanted me to go. He wanted me to go swimming too. A lot of too, changing but, going on. But I said, no, I'm not. I'm not swimming. It's midnight. There's no way. But oh, I'll mate. rescue you if you need me to. Stories like this is why we make this podcast. Wouldn't be easy though. He's a big man. Yeah. That wouldn't be easy to rescue him. <laughs> you, you, you did. Don't dream it's over, didn't you? In the show, we did that on the tour. Yeah, it was. Um, and it was. I saw the show, and it was. Well, I'm surprised they let you do it because it was the highlight of the show for me. I mean, it was absolutely stunning. And well, I, know, I, mean, I remember Stevie introducing it. They were very generous at every, um, in every way, really. They wanted to make sure that Mike and I felt we were, you know, a part of the band. So, I've got to ask yeah. you as a songwriter about the moment you wrote that song and how... I was, yeah, but I wanted to hear about that. I mean, I'm just basic. No, basically, what I'm saying is, give me some tips so I can go and write one of those. Again. <laughs> oh, man, I should be writing another one of those by now, anyway. So, um, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, just uh, I was at my brother's house in Melbourne. He wasn't there at the time, but I was there, and we had people turn up to visit. And Paul Hester was there at the time, and he was entertaining them. And I didn't feel very sociable, and I went into the piano and just, yeah, just that just kind of spilled out. And only a few songs ever, ever do, but a lot mm-hmm. of words, most of the words all at the same time, and sometimes words that end up feeling universal end up feeling uh, quite personal. 
So they come, they come to build a wall between us. Was just them me talking about some visitors coming over to distract Paul from um, from me. So it was one of those you know little personal life moments that ends up yeah ends up feeling kind of universal. But and I went home and wrote a, uh, did a little demo of it, and instead of piano, I did it on guitar because I didn't have piano at home at the time, and it was kind of exactly the same really as the record in a demo form without the organ solo without the b3 oh that was just gorgeous which was mitchell you know mitchell give him mitchell Froome, yeah he was he was a big part of your story wasn't he from the word go wasn't he really mitchell well yeah i mean he was he was a great person to meet at the time that we went to la to do our first record he introduced me and us to a whole different set of influences i've come off the back of split ends which was you know in a way very much coming from an English pop tradition. Mitchell had, you know, the B3 thing going on. He had like an appreciation of R&B bass lines and things that I hadn't really been mm. exposed to. In fact, Don't Dream It's Over was the one thing that it, I didn't have on my original demo was a bass line and he put that, you know, boom, ba which was, a you know, just a classic R&B moment which he played on the left hand of his Hammond when I first went to visit him so yeah he just he bought some really nice things into it and then a little pad that he added and you know just made the song into a in fact the first time we tried that song with Crowded House before we got with Mitchell it sounded terrible you know we couldn't play it we couldn't figure out how to to render that song it it wasn't it wasn't working at all so there was something about the tones and character that he he suggested that really brought that song to life yeah crowded house had that fantastic proper happy little gang vibe yeah it? yeah well we were you know like because you knew paul i yeah i knew because when i because i used to play for ice house right and oh, yeah. when i first went to sydney because john lloyd our drummer shared a flat with paul yeah right. when he was in deck chairs yeah, overboard right. yeah, yeah, and I then, remember um, john, yeah and I remember, I remember Paul getting the gig with Split Ends and it was a big deal it was- yeah well the, I, it, there was a kind of a synchronicity there because well I had actually rang Rob Hurst to see if he knew any good drummers and he was mates with Paul and he suggested Paul and Paul came and auditioned for Split Ends got the job and then Rob was looking for a bass player and we were living at the time with Bones Hillman who's sadly no longer with us but he was a fantastic bass player in a band called The Swingers with Phil Judd and living as our lodger and I said you should try Bones and he got the job in Midnight Oil so we had a kind of a talent spotting thing going on between the two of us but we were a gang and I think the great thing about a band is that the music um, business is you know it's hard for a number of ways and it's not just music it's the when you start doing all the promotion and all the the business to do with being successful and getting your records out there and making people aware of yourself. I think being solo is is really uh, lonely and kind of difficult and it's no wonder people crumble under the pressure. Being in a band where you enjoy each other's company allows you to subvert the process and have a laugh and it's so valuable. Even from photo sessions to TV appearances to, and we really enjoyed each yeah. other's company. You know, we made, we really had a good time and it became a good, calling card for us is to walk into a situation and leave people having a a really good experience and having a good laugh and it wasn't 
that we designed it that way. We just actually found that that was a way of doing things that really made a difference. I remember you saying a really sweet thing in an interview after your first album. Someone said, uh, how important is the success of, of this and what does success mean to you? And you said, well, it's great having a successful album because it means then you can afford to get Bob Clearmountain to mix your next one. <laughs> and then you got Bob Clearmountain to mix your next album. Yeah, well, we probably had, were negotiating with him at the time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Neil, you hit such a rich seam as a songwriter. I mean, these songs are meant so much to me as well over the years. I mean, you know, Weather With You, Fall At Your Feet, Into Temptation. I, mean, I actually read that Into Temptation, your wife had heard it and thought he must be having an affair to write lyrics as good as that. Oh, I can't remember I now, but it goes, it goes way back. I wouldn't, if I was you, no. I wouldn't remember that. I'd be yeah. <laughs> but also, also, I remember thinking how much, um, there was a track, I think it's on um, Temple of Low Men, I Better Be Home Soon. And I remember when the Verve yeah. brought out The Drugs Don't Work, and it's like, but that's that song. Do you remember that? It wasn't me that pointed that out, but Elvis Costello actually pointed that out to me. He was in New Zealand. I got up and sang with him at some event. I can't remember what it was now, but um, yeah, and he said, he said, you know, you should look into that Verve song. It's like they've, you know, I think they've, you know, they should be uh, giving uh, you yeah. some credit there. But I don't know. So it wasn't me that said that, but I'd say Elvis is a pretty good judge. Well, I could hear it myself. But I think the Verve have suffered enough with uh, publishing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't impose on, on them at all. Yeah, they've had, to, they've had to really suck it up, haven't they? Oh, yeah, and in fact, that was with the same producer. That was with Youth, your producer, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. He was coming off the back of that when we worked with him, actually. It was an impressive production. It was part of our attraction to him at the time. Yeah, but I, I remember another thing, which is something always stuck in my head because I found it very amusing, was that Temple of Low Men, that title comes from a list of euphemisms, one of which, which you thought of using, was the eye that weeps most when best pleased. <laughs> oh, my God, you've really dug around in the, in the analysts there, No, you? that's just something I remember. That's been in my head since Isn't that, that album came out. Gotcha. I know. Well, <laughs> that's so funny. Chad Blake had a book of euphemisms, and uh, oh, yeah, we, and it was in the studio, so we were looking at it every day, and, and that, that's a true story. Yeah, as much as it's slightly embarrassing yes. to to admit, yeah, there was many others as well that were equally as memorable. Uh, we won't go into. Why did you decide that Crowded House had sort of had its day, and it wasn't by then Crowded House you? Oh, I don't know. You know, like. I can't answer that really because at the time it was just um, I think success is a weird thing for it doesn't improve many people's personalities in my experience and um, it created certain stresses and anxieties in me that I look back and I go what why was I worried about that and Paul Hester had left the band at that point and we hadn't really dealt with that properly and probably hadn't realized what a um, fundamental shift in the universe that was. At the time we were so, it had been so frustrating having him um, so unhappy for the, like the last year of the band for unknown reasons at the time that we were kind of go, oh, thank God something's changed. Let's just keep going. And we did a tour and but then I, we got back to a rehearsal recording mode and with a new drummer, he was really good and lovely guy and everything, but I wasn't feeling it. And so I thought, if it's not the same band as it used to be, 
and it doesn't feel right then I may as well be free again and just go and find some new you know new path and it was you know in order to serve the muse or something I think and you know but ultimately that's what I was thinking I was thinking oh, I've got to keep it fresh and keep it moving but looking back you kind of go well somebody should have been protecting the personality of the band and right. whether that was me or management or somebody but nobody was thinking you know you just realize that certain things get away on you so that was probably the how do you know if you're thing. writing for you or for crowded house when you when you I don't, you've just done you know is it because you've the different people in the room writing is always the same weird mysterious unknown process that i just jump into and write a bunch of stuff and i guess at times i was thinking this sounds like stuff that a band should play and there's times i'm thinking all this this stuff that i just want to play myself or you know invent new sounds and textures for or i work with a orchestra like i did a couple of albums ago and oh um, out of silence you're talking about out of silence yeah yeah i mean that was absolutely my favorite album of that year i thought the songs on that were so inspiring i mean i was lifted as as a songwriter I took so much out of listening to that album. That's very nice Uh, to hear, thank you. But what shocked me was realising that you'd recorded it all live. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It was a very willful, you know, endeavour and fantastic. And we had like a, you know, I guess 25, 30 orchestra players in the room, which is not a massive room, but it accommodated everybody. And me on a piano and vocals and I had... a choir of friends and kind of ring-ins really I wanted to make a choir of people that sounded like people singing around a fire rather than a, a really studied professional crew but it was a really difficult technical thing for the people to keep everything separated so and we did a four-hour session to make the actual record we had three preparation weeks on the Fridays before trying to get into that kind of mindset and then we did it all live did two or three takes of most songs and chose the one we liked the best but yeah it was all recorded live and then three days later it was mixed and a month later or maybe three weeks later it was out given my time again I probably would have thought well what's the hurry why don't just do it like that and then you know and then finish it at leisure because it was quite stressful campfire orchestra (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the the string players were no, the orchestra were amazing. You know, they were. I've got a great collaborator down here, Victoria Kelly, who's you know an amazing arranger, and so that was all great. But I think we tried to do a lot, and it was. I'm not. I'm not sort of saying that I regret any of it, but it was st- more stressful and and more um, intense than it probably needed to be. But I would, you know, like these things that you do, and you and you think, oh, next time I. So there will be a next time on that, and I'll it'll be something that will be good to see live on the internet which was part of the the thing for me i wanted people to experience it as it was happening you know the thing that must have been stressful was getting the vocals right i mean because there was you know if you'd pitched yeah. wrongly and halfway through and oh my god i've got to well, get the orchestra back yeah no i i think my I, I was pretty i'd really done a lot of work on my songs at that point now so i was singing them pretty good and i think my right. vocals generally were okay it was really hard to get the choir to sound great on the night because there was so much leakage coming from everything else and they were that was the hard part but is we there actually film ended of it? up 
yeah that was all went live on on the internet and i think it's probably all archived somewhere we maybe trimmed it down a little bit so that it would be easier viewing but yeah it was like a three four hour at least three hours of i've never done anything more exhausting and we're talking you know like it's all being live so you're kind of aware of the people although actually it was the process was good because i started to forget about having to consider people watching or listening which is always good on i think on the internet when you when people lose their self-consciousness you know no matter what the idiom is it's always good when you know you're watching something that's or listening to something that's yeah. just that's happening you know in real time just to finish off really i had this like this new album has it been done in lockdown neil well the the, the dreamers awaiting was done was started in um we did it just as uh, the pandemic was becoming a talking point and we went into the studio for three weeks in LA and did all the rhythm tracks sort of on the floor like bands do or used to. Then lockdown happened and we went into our own little private spaces and sent files to each other for the next three or four months. Well, that's quite nice. If, if you've got all the tracking done, that's kind of what you'd be doing anyway. Perfect, so yeah. that's quite nice. And some, yeah. of them, yeah. some of them remained pretty true to exactly what we'd put down and some of them got thrown up in the air and reassembled through that process of sending files to each other so yeah it's a real mixed mixed bag and uh, but I do feel it has a nice at the core of it is a band playing you know um, which is a really nice thing and we just did some more recording we went and played an Australian tour and I got COVID in the four shows from the end so we didn't get to finish it unfortunately but um oh. we went into a sort of an isolation for about a week or almost two weeks in byron bay and you'd know that guy i'm sure you've yeah, I do. spent yeah. time i, I guess uh, john we, used to live there <laughs> oh yeah there we go well we went to the music farm which you may remember from back in the day as well oh, yeah somebody's put a lot of money into making it look exactly the same as it did back in the day they've even put the same baffles in the ceiling with stains from god knows what band but you know <laughs> Uh, to make it look authentic but it's in really good shape and and you can open the doors and we had like this you know cricket so loud that you could hear them on the beginning of every take and but it was a beautiful Great. environment we recorded eight new songs just about four, you know four or five weeks ago which i'm going to be working on the next week or so so the band has managed you know we've only been together for three weeks before the pandemic three weeks during the pandemic when we did a new zealand tour and then again now in Australia and we've managed to really use the time well so yeah there's some some really good songs and how do you find your writing time how do you find it do you try and make yourself do that as a job well when I was you know I kind of liked I didn't mind lockdown and I I say that fully aware that a lot of people had a understandably a very mm-hmm. hard time so I don't want to be sound glib about it but I quite liked it because I was able to get into my room every day with my coffee and just spend the whole day there and there was no distractions and I got a bunch of stuff written last year as a result which you know now we're working on in some cases at the band and there's other stuff I've got that's that I'm just working on on my own but so it was you know it was productive and I and I enjoyed that part of it Neil I'm sorry we can't come and see you on the road Ah, oh, well, we can't. Yeah, we're probably going to have to maintain the bubble. Yeah, backstage and everything. But well, no, because we're on the road ourselves. So we're oh, you're on be the road yourselves. When, yeah. We've got nine yeah. weeks in yeah. Europe when, we're, when you're in the UK. I oh, shit. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on, Neil. All right. We kept you up nice late. Nice to talk yeah, to you, Yeah, really fellas. great, yeah. Neil. 
total pleasure speaking to you. Yeah, yeah really, great. really, nice Neil, to talk really. to you guys as well. I hope you do it goes well. And you. Yeah, all the best. Oh, what nice man. Yeah, I, but Garrett, I, I very like how you are mining the songwriter there. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? I absolutely was. I mean, I find other songwriters' sort of work process really inspiring and intriguing. You know, it's, I, I felt like I was getting a free masterclass there that I didn't have to get my credit card out for. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's made me want to go and pick up a guitar again, you know, and go to a piano or something. He's, but he's so humble with he's it. He's so humble with it, yeah. It clearly, from, from no matter what he says, it clearly pours out of him and he has to find an outlet for him all the time. You know, it's either a band, it's solo, it's doing this, it's doing that. But anyway, we need to get off because yeah. we've got to pack up and go to Manchester. Yeah, I've got to do my suitcase. It's it's all over the room already. Of course, it always oh, is. Don't isn't start it? me. Don't start me. Yeah. It's, <laughs> oh. And if anyone knew the nightmare we've been through to get this to you, <laughs> Gary and I have been all over the hotel. He's in the boardroom. I'm in the dining room. It's a nightmare. I was running around during that interview trying to find mains for my computer because I suddenly and there's no plugs in this room. And my computer is about to die. That's how much we love you people. Luckily, we've got no show tonight. Night off in Manchester. Exactly. All right. We'll see you next week. We hope if we can find some internet. Lots of love. All exactly. the best. What is it? What do we say? Good night from him. And it's good night from New Zealand and from Edinburgh. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.